And thank you. Well, that's uh, that's some good August energy right there, man. Man, that was excellent. Good job. Well, you're welcome. Uh, I'm Joe Davis. Uh, we're continuing with our series uh, called Surviving in Egypt. For those of you that aren't aware, if you're new, Egypt is a metaphor for the world. So we're talking about the life of Joseph and the lessons that we learn from the life of Joseph about how to survive in this world in a way that brings a smile to Heavenly Dad's face, that, that brings our salvation to completion. And I've entitled today's message, number 20 in the series, is Advocates in Egypt. So here's a question for you. We've been talking about surviving in Egypt for 20 weeks, 19 weeks. This is the 20th. Can you really say that you, in fact, are surviving in Egypt? Is there actually outward evidence of life-saving transformation going on in your life? Let me tell you why I ask this question, because I feel like the church in America, probably the church everywhere, but particularly the church in America, we have become experts at looking like we are surviving in Egypt. And we do it economically, too. We do it in style. And all across America this morning, there are churches looking like they're surviving Egypt, and they're doing it in comfort. Air-conditioned, nice seats, big, beautiful buildings, really good stage presence, except for here. <clears throat> what we have done is we have created our own little transformation ecosystem that makes us feel like we're doing just fine in Egypt. We have our music stations. We have our books. We have our bumper stickers. Our little scripture memes that we post on social media that we generate from that Bible app. Nothing wrong with those. But it's sort of like what we have done is we have built an ark, like Noah's ark, of church culture to make us feel like we are surviving in Egypt. Question, you don't really believe those things prove you're following Jesus, do you? The books, the music, the bumper stickers, the memes, you don't really think those prove you're following Jesus, do you? That you're surviving in Egypt? In fact, I submit to you today that if you really want evidence that you are surviving Egypt, we must step out of our protected cocoon of Christian counterculture into the dangers of Egypt for the benefit of others. The real evidence that you're surviving in Egypt is when we become advocates for others that are trying to survive in Egypt just like us, even if it may cost us something. At the end of this message, I'm going to show you a verse that maybe all of you or most of you have heard, but I don't think you really maybe have ever understood it until today. So we're going through a big portion of Scripture. The first thing I want to do is give you a summary of the first 15 verses of chapter 44. There's one final test that Joseph lays out. He wants to find out if his brothers, if you're following the story with me each week, he wants to find out, okay, my brothers look like they're showing some evidence that God is transforming them. I really want to see what's going on. So there's one final test. He sees their display of gratitude 
for Benjamin's good fortune, and no doubt that was encouraging for him, especially realizing what they did to him 25 years earlier. But he still needs to see more evidence of God transforming grace in their life. He wants to test their actual loyalty to Benjamin when it could mean their own hides are at stake. And as they prepare to leave, Joseph just wants to see if they will abandon Benjamin for their own comfort and safety. So along with the generous sacks of food and returning all the money that they had brought, he gives them all this grain for free in this famine so his family can, can have food and survive. He commands his personal assistant, the leader of his house, to plan a setup. He says, I want you to take my personal silver cup and plant it in Benjamin's stack. That's the one that uh, he had just shown favoritism, the youngest brother, his true brother. I want you to plant it in his sack like it has been stolen. His intention is to see if they will stand up for Benjamin. So they leave and they have this thing in the stack and he tells his steward, listen, go chase them down and arrest them for stealing the cup. And so the, the steward gets there and he says, stop. We need to check your bags. And the brothers are certain that nobody has stole. Why would we steal anything from you? You've been great to us. We would never steal anything from Joseph. Nevertheless, they get their bags searched. And they even say to this, before you search them, we're going to tell you this. We're so confident we didn't do anything. If somebody did steal something, put them to death and then put the rest of us in slavery for the rest of our lives. They're very confident that nobody's done anything wrong. <clears throat> Put the thief to death. Take away our freedom. Then, of course, they find the planted silver cup in Benjamin's sack. And the scripture says they're weeping and crying and saddened. They are certain their journey to bring food back to dad has ended in failure. Remember, they still don't know this is really Joseph. They arrive back at Joseph. They're taken back by force. He accuses them of treachery and thievery, and that's where the story really gets amazing. We're looking at Genesis 44, verses 16 through 34. And Judah, this is what the story's about now, Judah. He's now the star of this whole story. And Judah said, what shall we say to you, my Lord? He's talking to Joseph. He doesn't know it's his brother. What shall we speak, or how can we clear ourselves? God has found out the guilt of your servants, and he's really talking about his guilt in the past, not the guilt here. Behold, we are my Lord's servants, both we and he also in whose hand the cup has been found. But Joseph said, far be it from me that I should do so. The only man in, in whose hand the cup was found shall be my servant. But as for you, go up in peace. Go back to your father. Joseph says, look, I know you want to sit here and take the blame for your little brother. I'm not going to do it. I'm only going to punish your brother. You're free to go. Leave your brother here with me in slavery. Doesn't that sound familiar? Then Judah went up to him and said, Oh, my Lord, please let your servant speak a word in my Lord's ear. He's saying, can I approach the bench, your honor? He walks up. Listen, I got to talk to you, king. Let me tell you what's going on. Let not your anger burn against your servant, for you are like Pharaoh himself. My Lord asked his servant, saying, have you a father or a brother? And we said to my Lord, we have a father, an old man and a young brother, the child of his old age. His brother is dead. And he is alone, left his mother's children, and his father loves him. Here's what he says. Look, I told you about my dad. He had two favorite sons from his wife. One is dead. He's talking about Joseph, but doesn't realize it. And there's only one son left. It's Benjamin, and he's his favorite. King, listen, this guy, Benjamin, 
It's my dad's favorite kid. Wow. Then you said to your servants, bring him down to me that I may set eyes on him. And that's what we did. We said to my Lord, the boy cannot leave his father. For if he should leave his father, his father would die. Then you said to your servants, unless your youngest brother comes down with you, you shall not see my face again. So we went back to your servant, my father. We told him the words of my Lord. And when our father said, go again and buy us a little food, we said, we cannot go down. If our youngest brother goes with us, then we can go. For we cannot even see the man's face unless Benjamin comes with us. Then your servant's servant, my father, said to us, you know that my wife bore me two sons. No, you had 12 sons. You see what J Judah is dealing with? The reality, the fact is he doesn't even think about Leah's sons as being his sons. He's thinking about Joseph and Benjamin. One left me. And I said, surely he has been torn to pieces. And I have never since seen him. If you take this one also from me and harm happens to him, you will bring down my gray hairs in evil to the grave. I'll die if something happens to Benjamin after what happened to Joseph. Now, therefore, as soon as I come to your servant, my father, and if I don't bring Benjamin back with us, then as his life is bound up in the boy's life, as soon as he sees that Benjamin is not with us, he will die and your servants will bring down the gray hairs of your servant, our father, with sorrow to the grave. For your servant, me, Judah, I became a pledge of safety for my dad's favorite son. The boy to my father saying, if I do not bring him back to you, then I shall bear the full blame before my father all my life. Now, therefore, please let me remain instead of Benjamin as the servant, the slave to my Lord. Let me pay for what he has done. What does that sound like? And let the boy go back with his brothers. For how can I go back to my father if the boy, Benjamin, is not with me? I fear to see the evil that would find my father. This is just a fascinating story, isn't it? So what we do at Grace Life, we look at each passage in three areas. We look at the history. What about man? What did he do and why and how did he do it? Then we look at the, the spiritual or the theology. What about God? What does he do? And then and only then can we really understand what we're supposed to do with the passage, the personal. What about me? What am I supposed to do? So let's look at the history. Judah becomes the advocate. From this point forward, this is no longer about the life of Joseph. In reality, this series now could be changed to surviving in Egypt, the life of Judah. He is now the star of the show. Joseph is almost a second player, an afterthought now, and Judah becomes front and center, the main part of the story. And what we see here is he has become a loyal brother. He was anything but a loyal brother before. Selling Joseph into slavery, all those things. But Judah does not turn his back on Benjamin this time. Quite the opposite, he tries to take the blame. And Judah unmistakably associates himself with what appears to others to be a guilty Benjamin. He says, look, that's my brother. Put it on me. I'm responsible. I mean, perhaps Judah thought Benjamin stole it. Or perhaps Judah suspects one of the other brothers set Benjamin up with it. He doesn't know what the truth is. Either way, it doesn't matter to him. He's not going to abandon Benjamin, no matter what. He puts himself in between the wrath of the ruler who he doesn't know is his brother that he sold into slavery 25 years ago, 
and the younger brother. Judah comes in between and says, no, king, don't punish the guilty. Punish me. He wants to know how the price must be paid to make it right. He is speaking for the group of brothers. He is the leader here. And Joseph offers him an easy way out. No way am I going to hold innocent people accountable for what this wretched young man did. I gave him all this favoritism at the lunch we just talked about last week. And now he's going to steal my cup. No, I'm going to make Benjamin give restitution. But Judah knows he can't leave Benjamin behind. Joseph says, you can go. You're free to go. Don't worry about it. I'll deal with your younger brother. You can go and live your life. Matter of fact, take more money, take more grain, anything you need. Just go. But Judah knows he made a promise to his despicable, dysfunctional, wretched, disgusting dad. And that's what he is. Jacob is not a good guy. He explains that if he returns without Benjamin, his father, who clearly doesn't love him as much as he loves Benjamin, will die and maybe even kill himself with sorrow. He further explains that he, Judah, is the one personally responsible to bring Benjamin back safe and sound. I love how John Calvin describes this. Judah wished himself to be put in Benjamin's place and to undergo perpetual exile and servitude rather than convey to the miserable old man tidings which would be the cause of his destruction. Boy, that's a great way to describe what's going on here. He is trying to save heartache for a man who doesn't deserve the effort. Judah offers to take Benjamin's place as a slave. King, punish me instead of him. Again, church, who does that sound like? What we see here is just a stunning transformation in this guy. Matthew Henry says this, Judah surpasses all his brothers in boldness, wisdom, eloquence, and especially tenderness for their father and family. He is the interceder. He is the advocate. He is the go-between. He is the one speaking in spiritual terms for his family's well-being. Imagine the mixed emotions Joseph must have here. This is the brother that masterminded the whole idea of selling Joseph. The rest of the brothers said, we got to kill him. And Judah says, nah, let's sell him and get some money out of this guy. It was all Judah's idea. He masterminded the thing. But Judah has accepted the fact that Rachel's sons are Jacob's favorites. Matter of fact, he refers to it in his impassioned speech to Joseph. He repeatedly mentions a special affection his father has for Benjamin. Favoritism that birthed envy and jealousy and resentment before is now his very motivation to be an advocate for his brother, knowing this, his terrible, dysfunctional father would be devastated to lose the last of Rachel's sons. Judah is now the godly leader in this group. He stands out above all of them. It's really, frankly, amazing to me. Judah is committed to his brother, committed to honoring his wretched father. What an awesome advocate Benjamin had, don't you agree? I mean, if you were in Benjamin's shoes, and that was what you were facing, and you know you were innocent, and then your older brother said, no, no, pun you couldn't have a better advocate. I mean, that takes it to the highest level. So that's the history Let's look at the spiritual. What about God? What does he do? I want to talk about God's plan for Judah. First of all, let's talk about 
what God's role was in Judah's transformation. Now, there is a story of Judah that's pretty amazing. And it's there in this story of the life of Joseph so that we know what the evidence looks like when we were actually surviving in Egypt. It's actually in chapter 34. But the action of God transforming Judah into an advocate for his brother is inspiring, especially considering what it would cost Judah if it all went out the way he thought it might. It would cost him his very freedom, maybe even his life. Now, I skipped over the story earlier in this series. It was in chapter 34. But in that chapter, after Joseph is sold, there's a story describing Judah's true character during that time. It seems sort of like an out-of-place insertion, and I skipped it on purpose at the time because, you know, I didn't want to preach it. <laughs> it was a pretty, pretty bad story. It seems like an interruption in this drama about the life of Joseph, but right at the beginning of the story, there's a whole chapter about Judah. And you see, why is that in there? It's a story about Tamar. It's a story about Judah's treachery and debauchery. Read it on your own. This was so we could see the moment that God started transforming Judah. And it was in chapter 34. See, I don't think that Judah is doing this for Benjamin out of guilt over past failures. Because listen, I'll tell you right now, guilt, listen carefully to me, guilt is not powerful. Guilt does not transform you. Did you know that? Guilt does not change you. Guilt does not make you a better person. Guilt just condemns you in your own heart and mind. But here's the fact. Before chapter 34, he didn't care that Jacob would greed Joseph. He could care less that Jacob would be so sad that his favorite son was gone. But now he does care what would happen to his wretched dad if Benjamin is not there. It's Judah, a once selfish, immoral, corrupt man who is transformed into a selfish, sacrificial advocate for his brother. Judah has compassion for his rotten father and love for his brothers. Here's what's happened. Judah now has a soul. So I challenge you, go back to chapter 34. Once you read it, you'll know why I didn't preach it. But once you read it, you'll see, wow, that's why that's in there. So that's the first thing I want to see about what God does. He does transform Judah. And I want to talk about something fascinating. This is deep. I want to talk about Jesus and Judah. So here's what people do with the life of Joseph. And I'm not saying they're wrong, but... They teach all the ways that Joseph is some side of a type of a picture or a type of Jesus. And there is some there. Some of you may have heard that before. But in fact, as we see today, the clearest picture of Jesus in this story is actually Judah. I mean, Joseph's images of Jesus just kind of dance around the edges. And it, it might be Jesus. It could be Jesus. You read Judah. Oh, man, that sounds like Jesus. For all the celebration about Joseph, Joseph is not the line God chooses for the birth of our Savior. Wouldn't it make sense that Joseph would be the line of Jesus? I mean, look how successful he was and powerful and how God blessed him. Joseph was simply a tool to preserve the line of Judah. At the end of his life, by God's plan, here is the blessing that Jacob confers on Judah of all people. Genesis 49, 8 through 10. This is what Jacob says to Judah. Judah, your brother shall praise you. Didn't that sound like the dream that Joseph had? Remember at the very beginning? 
Judah, your brother shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's son shall bow down before you. Judah is a lion's cub from the prey. My son, you have gone up. He stooped down. He crouched as a lion and as a lioness who dares rouse him. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until tribute comes to him and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. And through the story, you can see a clear connection begins to happen between the role of Judah for Benjamin and Jesus in ours. Matter of fact, you see that language about Judah and the lion and the lioness and the roar and the cub? Look what Revelation 5, 5 says about our Jesus. And one of the elders said to me, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah. Did some of you just got chills up and down your spine? The root of David has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. Do you see how that sounds a lot like that verse? That's Jesus. That's Judah. Think about this. Judah's line ultimately becomes the very salvation of Joseph and us. God's role is fascinating in this story. Now let's look at the personal side. What about you? What about me? What are we supposed to do and how do we do it? I've entitled this section, Advocates Like Judah, and I put in parentheses, Jesus. So this was the social media campaign this week. Advocacy means nothing if it doesn't cost something. So how can we be sure our survival in Egypt is real? We talked about that at the very beginning. How can we make sure we look like Judah in Egypt and in turn like our brother Jesus? In 1 John, he writes, My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. Church, there is no way We will ever survive Egypt without our older brother Jesus as our advocate. I think we know that. Without his transformation of our life. Likewise, this is where it gets hard, and some of you may not like this. I'm calling you out of your ark today. Your Christian ecosystem. There is no way to survive in Egypt without becoming like Judah and Jesus in our advocacy to others. Look, survival cannot be selfish. Your surviving in Egypt cannot be about preserving your own life. You aren't the only one trying to survive in Egypt. But we act like it a lot of times, don't we? Woe is me, Egypt is hard. Yeah, it's hard for everyone. In James chapter 2, 14 to 17, here's what James says. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him if a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food? And one of you says, go in peace, be warmed and filled without giving them the things needed for the body. What good is that? So faith by itself, if it does not have works, will not allow you to survive in Egypt. Faith without works is dead. True transformation will force you to become an advocate for others. As Christians, if we cannot find motivation and willingness to advocate for others like Judah did in a way that comes with a cost, we aren't surviving in Egypt. Actually, Egypt is winning. It's winning over our hearts, our minds, 
and our talents and our treasure because we are preserving the cost for advocacy for our own benefits. We become disgustingly selfish with our survival efforts. And we forget that many around us are having the same exact struggle. And we cocoon ourselves in this culture of things all nice and warm and sanctified and cozy. We're not being transformed. If the survival in Egypt is centered on comfort, you're never going to make it. If your survival or that of those you love is your main or only focus, you may not actually be surviving. You're not even being transformed. The Judah style of transformation will cause us to actively seek to help others survive. Now here's the temptation. The temptation for us in Egypt is to manage our advocacy. So it remains self-righteous and comfortable. And here are some examples of advocacy that Christians rely upon to relieve their guilt and stay in their cocoon. The first one is political advocacy, both sides of the aisle. Certainly we should be good citizens and be involved in that process, but, but politics is inherently Egyptian. It's not spiritual. I don't care what side you vote for. It's not spiritual. There is a place for political involvement. But I will tell you, I think political advocacy is the easiest, cheapest, most self-serving, self-righteous form of advocacy. Because it's usually at the cost of someone else's dollar or someone else's candidate losing. This feeds our human desire to be arrogant and judgmental of those that disagree with our opinions on how things should be done. And if you think political advocacy is enough, you haven't read your New Testament very much, have you? What does Jesus say? Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar and to God the things that are God's. I'm not saying you can't have it as part of your role, but if that's what you think advocacy is, you don't know Jesus' teachings very well. That's why political advocacy, in my opinion, is a cheap way out. It defers the cost to others. I'm not saying you can't be an advocate for others through a political process as part of it. But if that is your focus, you are not following Jesus. You're following political agendas. That's the most I've said about politics at Grace Life, I think, since we started. <laughs> Christians are called to be advocate for others at their own cost as well. That's what being like Christ looks like. Then there's another type of advocacy we like to outsource to, institutional advocacy. Let me explain this one. We like to outsource our advocacy at the institutional level, allowing us to claim the role of advocate without really getting dirty. Being advocates from an arm's length is not like Jesus. It's Egyptian. Now, certainly we can and should support those with a special calling and maybe a special skill set to be advocates for others that we are unable to reach. I get that. We do that here at Grace Life with some people with a special gift, gift and skill set and strength. But you can't say you are compassionate if all your advocacy is done through an organization or an institution. You know what these forms of advocacy do? 
this political and institutional, you're not going to like this. What they do is manage the risk. It allows you to safely, arrogantly, piously draw a line, a hedge around what your advocacy might actually cost you. I have a dollar and cents and a timing amount on what advocacy is, and therefore I know I can do it while I remain in the arc of Christian counterculture. And usually these forms of advocacy have winners and losers. But usually the loser is not us. It's not really advocacy. In many ways, it's self-service. Here's what I think our advocacy should look like. It should be personal. I mean, you can have some political and institutional, but the bulk of our advocacy should be personal. This is the kind of advocates we become we will become when God calls us out of darkness as he did for Judah, starting in chapter 34 and coming to chapter 44. And now we see this amazing transformation. It's not because Judah finally started getting it. It's because God said, you're going to get it and you're going to become an advocate, whether you like it or not. This is the kind of advocacy that you know is real because it comes with a cost. Time. Money. Pain. Disappointment, heartbreak. This is the cost of true advocacy. All right. I'm going to put a verse up in just a minute. I'm going to do something a little different this morning. I'm going to put it up. I'm going to read it. And I want us to sit here in silence for a minute or two until it gets a little bit uncomfortable. And I want you to think about it and read it in the light of what I have just said today. Whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life will keep it, surviving in Egypt. Think about how this relates to advocacy, not on the political level, certainly not the institutional level. This, this definition of advocacy is definitely at a personal level. Have you read it a few times? See, Jesus did not come into the world to talk, to change governments, to build a big institution. <clears throat> that wasn't his job. He came <clears throat> to seek and to save that which was lost and to pay whatever price personally was necessary to make sure those given to him would survive Egypt. 
all the Father has given to me will come to me, and no one can pluck them out of my hand. Why? Because I will pay whatever cost necessary. I will be their personal advocate because I want to make sure they survive in Egypt. <clears throat> if we as a church, as individuals, are truly surviving Egypt, we will have evidence of following the example set by Judah and our brother Jesus, our big brother, who stands between the wrath of the king and us. And he says, no, dad, punish me instead, no matter the cost, so they can survive and I can bring them back to you so that you can enjoy them forever. Wow. Is that not Judah? Isn't that amazing? If we are truly being transformed, truly surviving Egypt, we will be, <clears throat> no question, actively involved and engaged in helping others survive as well. We will step out of the mirage of safety that we have built and fulfill our calling to be advocates in Egypt, even to those who God brings into our lives, even if it comes at great cost. Dad, we just want you to make us advocates. We want to step off this little arc of Christian counterculture, this safety net that we have built around that manages the risks of following and serving and being like you. God, please give us wisdom, discernment, strength, courage, and understanding like Judah had. Transform us to that level so that we can bring a huge smile to your face as we mimic and evidence your character in our lives by how we advocate for others, even if it comes at great cost. <clears throat>